Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy to be catching back up with a good friend of mine, Peter Montgomery from the Right Wing Watch. It's been at least maybe a year or two since we met up. So welcome back, Peter, to MindShift Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be back. Yeah, we've got a lot to catch up on. I can't remember what we talked about last time, but we've obviously touched base on a lot of these concerning things, especially in terms of the Christian right in political involvement in America. That's kind of right in your wheelhouse. I mean, you've been reporting on this stuff for God knows how long, haven't you? Yeah, I've been paying attention to the Christian right for, you know, 20 plus years. So mm. I'm pretty what? tired of them, I have to say, but <laughs> they're not going say, anywhere. Yeah. So They're not going anywhere. Uh, what's your main your concern of 20 plus years? That's a hell of a long time to be researching and writing and sort of shining a spotlight on. What is your major concern now that you've got several decades of experience with this group? Well, I think one of the things that we have seen in recent years, particularly in the Trump era, is that the... Christian nationalism, which has always been uh, kind of at the heart of the movement, but sometimes downpedaled, mm-hmm. has now just become much more aggressive in the way that sort of uh, Trump has kind of amped up the aggressiveness in the entire right-wing movement. The Christian nationalism, the white Christian nationalism is much more aggressive. I think it has also helped foster uh, the rise of um, you know increasingly aggressive anti-Semitism on the right. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, there's some pretty good evidence out there um, from sociologists who've been studying Christian nationalism that the stronger someone's uh, Christian nationalist beliefs, the more likely they are to support authoritarianism mm-hmm. and the more likely they are to support uh, political violence to um, bring society in line with their worldview. So I think all that is very concerning, especially when it's uh, hitched to someone like Trump, who is, is very eager to be back in power. And the cons- one of the one of the many concerning things about the Trump rhetoric, as you pointed out, I've noticed that looking at his campaign speeches, he's like ripping back the veil. Now he's not even bothering to cloak his authoritarianism. There was something I think he was on Fox News, kind of quote unquote jokingly saying, "Well, I'll only be a dictator on the first day," you know, ha ha ha. And you think, okay, no, this isn't a joke. He always can say that though. Oh, I was just joking. I was just joking. It was just kidding, kidding. But it's not. He's not joking, is he? I mean, he's really talking about using the legal system to go after his quote-unquote enemies and other things that are super concerning if he were to get back in office. Yeah, and he's he's made it very clear, and not just him, but some of his closest advisors have also made it very clear that he's very serious about going after the media. You know, this is the mm-hmm. one of the first things that an autocrat does, right, is go after independent media and to try to silence the critics. And Trump is threatening to prosecute MSNBC and CNN and people that you know he, he has this grievance against because they did not um, they did not support his lies about the 2020 election and so that's one really troubling thing. Another really troubling thing is uh, you know particularly about the uh, the threat that you mentioned that he's going to use the Justice Department and the FBI as his tools of uh, personal vengeance. We have a, a project underway now here called Project 24. 25, which is a collaboration among now more than 80 right-wing organizations, including some of the biggest powerhouse organizations on the political right in the United States, uh, aligned with some of the newer think tanks that were started by former Trump administration officials. And they're, they've got the game plan in place for if he gets reelected to um, shut down the independence of the federal agencies, to shut down the independence of the Justice Department, and really take any of the guardrails off on Trump ordering, you know, law enforcement agencies and other agencies to go after his personal enemies and his political opponents and the media. So it's it's very it's it's a fright going to be a frightening time between now and the November election. It really is, and that one wonders if any of these lawsuits are going to stick. 
you know, he is truly the Teflon Don, isn't he? Literally the Teflon Don. Nothing has ever stuck to him. There's this ongoing trial right now. It's, it's as we're doing this recording, the, the fraud trial in New York. I mean, that's going to be wrapped up by the time this episode drops, but I'll be interested to see what happens there. He'll appeal it and everything else. But, you know, it's like what's happened in Colorado. They've, they've struck him off the ballot in the state of Colorado. That's going to be appealed. So will other states follow suit? It's like everyone's trying on the sort of Democratic side to stop him at all costs. But what do you think? Are they going to succeed? Will he be on the ballot in 2024? You know, I think it's probably more likely that he will be on the ballot. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm I'm not a lawyer, and I, I do know that people are bringing lawsuits like the one in Colorado are, are coming in other states. You know, Trump has made it very clear he's going to take that to the U.S. Supreme Court, where, um, you know, he's got friends on the court. Yeah, but, to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to put it mildly. But, you know, the court also did not, they did not come to his rescue in 2020 when he lost. And he was counting on them to help him overturn the results of the election. And they didn't. And so it's going to be interesting to see uh, how the Supreme Court handles how other courts handle it. I think it's more likely than not that they're going to let him on the ballot. And, you know, unless unless something you know surprising happens, he's going to be the Republican nominee um, based on the polling and based on the devotion of his followers. Yeah, slavish devotion, cult-like devotion. There's a lot of adjectives I think we could throw in there. That's a big concern. Well, going back to your point, you mentioned earlier Christian nationalism. What exactly is Christian nationalism? Because I know at some point we're going to get into the new GOP Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, and one of the concerning things, of, of many concerning things, was that he mentioned something about his connection to David Barton. And we've talked about David Barton before. He's one of the premier quote-unquote historians of the evangelical right. So maybe you could explain for the listeners, if they don't know what Christian nationalism is, what exactly is that sort of belief system? Yeah, it's uh, you know it's a contested term, and there's a lot of different people have different definitions of it. I think mm -hmm. to me, sort of a, a colloquial definition of it is if you're someone who believes that the United States was founded by and for Christians, and that uh, the identity of America is tied up with America having some divine mission from God. One of the pollsters uh, who studies Christian nationalism and values in politics, uh, his shorthand definition is people who believe. That the, the white Christian nationalists, the people who believe that the United States was is kind of a promised land from God for European Christians, and that um, they came to this continent to sort of, uh, and the continent was given to them by God as sort of a, a promised land, and mm -hmm. so that's who the real Americans are, are the white Christians, you know, uh, people who came like the the Pilgrims and the Puritans, uh, and everyone else is kind of not quite the same uh, in terms of their Americanness. So some of the, I think those are some of the aspects of Christian nationalism. Some scholars have uh, like a six or eight questions that they ask um, when doing surveys to identify, you know, do you believe, should Congress declare this a Christian nation? Do you believe that policy should um, all be, laws and policies should all be aligned with a certain view of the Bible? So there's different ways to gauge it, but it's basically, um, you know, that, that the United States was founded by four Christians, that it's tied up with um, American identity, is Christian identity. And uh, David Barton, you mentioned, and others go back to the Mayflower Compact, just mm -hmm. this document that they all signed on the Mayflower, you know, which was a long time before our Constitution, but they try to make that our founding document as, as a way of saying the U.S. has a, has a covenant with God and has a national mission to advance the Christian faith. And that could not be, you know, further from what our constitution says, mm -hmm. but that's what um, uh, people behind this movement say. Mm -hmm. I think you can find it too. I mean, I've talked to people like Dr. Warren Throckmorton. He's done a lot of work on Thomas Jefferson, debunking Barton's book, The Jefferson Lies. And I had him on the podcast not long ago. We went through his revised edition. They've come out with a new one. And there's another aspect of the book, too. They've taken aim. I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Wolf. He's written this book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, which is a hugely concerning thing. For one thing, it's printed by Canon Press, which is Doug Wilson's publishing house. And there's a whole can of worms there, you know, yes. Doug Wilson. Anything with Doug Wilson's fingerprints on it, my hackles start to rise. And I'm like, wait a minute, 
why is Canon Press publishing this particular book? And of course, the book itself is hugely problematic. You know, but one thing we talked about is that you can find that you can go back, as you said, to guys like John Winthrop and others, and they they did see America as the sort of promised land. They saw themselves as the quote new Israel, didn't they? And they thought we're coming, we're fleeing the religious persecution of Europe. We're coming to America. It's the promised land. We're going to be this shining city on a hill from which the gospel will go to all the world. You know, so you can see that. But it seemed like guys like Barton. I don't know what your thoughts on this are, but. He takes that and says that should be a blueprint or a template for all of America forever. You know, yes, it's, it's a strange and, sort of way to, to to interpret history. Yeah, and he, you know, he is a master at collecting historical documents and historical anecdotes, mm -hmm. and then completely picking and choosing ones that allow him to make his case. You know, and one of the simplest questions I, you know, encourage reporters or others to push back on Barton when they're looking at all this is, you know, the the real founding of our country. The way our country is is um, is structured and run is based on our constitution, not on what the Puritans or any of the original uh, settlers said. And the people that wrote the constitution, certainly many of them were Christians. That was their perfect opportunity to say this is a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. To say right in the constitution that we have a national mission to advance the Christian faith, like the folks on the Mayflower said, they didn't. They had the opportunity, they chose to do something very different, which was to put in the Constitution, uh, not only in the Bill of in the First Amendment to say you can't um, establish a national church, but to have in the Constitution itself a ban on any religious test for public office. So it's very clear that um, the, the history that they're peddling uh, about this uh, America being founded by and for Christians is just wrong. And, you know, that's why Barton's book originally got pulled from the shelves mm -hmm. because so many historians, including historians who are themselves Christians, you know, picked it apart. That's the irony of the whole thing. Warren Trockborn is an evangelical, <laughs> you know, so every time I talk to him, I always bring that issue up, you know, so this is so ironic that one of the reasons Barton couldn't really come after guys like Trockmorton and Michael Coulter was that they were sort of fellow evangelicals, you know, so they couldn't pull that one out and say, oh, it's conspiracy theory. Those those woke people, they want they don't want you to know the truth. Because the thing is about Barton, his his program with Jefferson, they're trying to rehabilitate him in a way, aren't they? They're trying to turn Thomas Jefferson into someone a, a modern day evangelical would love. He was a progressive. He wasn't, he didn't, you know, breed slaves. He didn't have children with Sally Hemings. No, no, he and he didn't believe in the separation of church and state. And he, you know, you're like, who is this Jefferson? I mean. Like you said, but it's it's so badly written and so poorly researched, it was pulled from the shelves. But that didn't destroy Barton's career. Why didn't that torch Barton's career? I don't understand it. He's bigger now than ever. Yeah, I mean, Barton, if you look at Barton in some way, he's um, that's a good analogy to Trump, right? Mm. No matter how Trump lies, no matter what Trump does, his followers are devoted to him. And I think Barton was kind of a um, precursor to that. You know, Barton told religious right leaders and conservative evangelicals what they wanted to hear. And he still does, which is, this country is meant for you. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be running this country. And for a lot of the country's history, you know, the, the culture was predominantly white and Protestant. And you could count on that as sort of being the default. And as our country has become more diverse, both religiously and ethnically, there's no longer one kind of dominant Protestant paradigm that's just accepted as the default. And I think that's very threatening to people. And someone like Barton can can play to that grievance the same way Trump's whole campaign and his whole Make America Again plays to this grievance of, you know, uh, we know who this country is really for. We know who the real Americans are. And these other people are taking it away from us. And, you know, depending on the day or who's talking, that's immigrants. It's secularists. It's feminist, you name it. You know, yeah. everybody who who they now, you know, label under the woke, the blanket of wokeness mm -hmm. is, uh, and anyway, so, so yeah, so it doesn't matter that Barton's book gets pulled from the shelves, even by, by a Christian publisher, by the way. Yeah. It doesn't matter that we have published many uh, reports debunking Barton. Uh, one yeah. of my colleagues kind of has made a, you know, made it part of his, uh, work consistently 
made a career out of it. And cite and track down how Barton is lying about history because what he is peddling is useful politically. It doesn't hurt him because, you know, I, I have said many times that the supposed guardians of truth on the Christian right actually show very little regard for it. And yeah, that's, that's a good quote. A, a prescient quote, unfortunately. Yeah, it's all too true, isn't it? Well, it seems like there's another piece to the Christian nationalist thing, because I remember, I mean, I was raised in the States. I was a fundamentalist. I was brought up in all the Christian nationalism in the 1970s and early 80s. You know, I, I watched the the beginning of the Christian right. I didn't know what it was then, but I was all on board. Uh, the anti-abortion movement and all the rest of it, moral majority and everything else. And I remember, I think it was 1976, there was a musical written by Jimmy and Carol Owens. I don't know if you remember this, but it was called If My People. And we went to the Seattle Center to see this live musical performance. I don't know if this rings any bells with you, but That's it was essentially, yeah, it was a Christian nationalist musical written by these these artists, these singers, Christian singers, and it was all based on Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, blah blah blah, then I will hear from heaven and heal their sins and, and heal their land and all the rest of it. And that whole thing was applied straight to America. So here I am, I'm 10, 11 years old, sitting in the Seattle Center, listening to this musical, and I'm fully on board at 10 years old, you know. And the other missing piece of it is that Second Chronicles thing, isn't it, whereby the argument is, yes, we were founded as a Christian nation, but we've strayed from the path, and yes. we need to get back on it. Now the question is, by what strategy is that going to happen? And what are you seeing? How is that happening? Is that the sort of agenda that's driving so much of this? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that's really fascinating because that specific Bible verse is absolutely the most quoted bit of scripture at religious mm -hmm. right political events over the last 10 years. I mean, Even everybody though, yeah, everybody quotes that verse and uses that verse. There's a couple of things that's useful for that about them. One, they love to criticize pastors and churches that aren't fully on board with their political mission. And so they blame the moral decay of the country more than anything else on the past fact that pastors are not political enough and are, aren't aggressive enough in their preaching and so part of that is the church has to repent and that's part of their effort to to bully pastors into joining their uh, political crusade and this idea that america is now under judgment under god's judgment because of gay marriage for example or many other things until roe because of the legality of abortion I mean, until Roe was overturned because of that. And so um, there is a need for national repentance, you know, not just individual repentance, but, it, but repentance becomes a national duty. So you have a lot of uh, events at which preachers and apostles and prophets are, um, you know, repenting on behalf of the nation and calling on God's mercy on behalf of the nation. There was a big one on the National Mall about two months before the 2020 election that was really meant to help keep Trump in power. It was meant to help turn the tide and make sure that he was reelected. And for the dominionist crowd, particularly, the idea that repentance comes before uh, reformation. Mm. And so um, their whole goal is to transform society, um, to reform society so that it comes in alignment with their biblical and political worldview. And that national repentance has to come first. And then you have um, actually um, revival, and then it's the revival that brings the societal revolution. So that's kind of what they're, what they're all about. They're trying to spark revival, religious revival, which they think is kind of the necessary precursor to um, really transforming society. But mm -hmm. meanwhile, they also want their hands on the levers of power. And that's why, that's why um, they hitched their wagon so closely to Trump, not only because he gave them access to power and he invited them in to power uh, the way no one ever had, no other president had. Um, but also because he's proven himself to be the fighter they want, someone who's aggressive enough to ignore the law if it gets in his way, to ignore democratic traditions and bipartisan traditions, because they want someone who's going to come in and break the status quo and mm -hmm. make it easier for them to do what they want to do. Yeah, someone's got to punch the bully in the face. I think that's what someone's. It might have been Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council. You know, we we need someone that we can 
get behind, who's going to punch that bully in the the liberals, the woke Democrats and all that. Apparently they've been bullying the Republicans for a long time and now it's time for someone to stand up and do the right thing. Yeah. They talk about Trump having a breaker anointing. Yeah. You know, they want chaos. They want someone to break stuff. And, you know, a lot of what they want to to break is the federal government itself. You know, they, Mm -hmm. they, uh, Trump is always talking about the deep state, his enemies in the deep state who's, who sabotaged him, who prevented him from first from fully carrying out his agenda, and then B, stopped him from really using this Justice Department and using the FBI to stay in power. You know, he was really trying to um, drag them into his illegal effort to stay in power after he lost and principled people on his own legal staff and in his own Justice Department stopped him. So he is going to make sure that he doesn't appoint any of those kind of people Mm-hmm. Or hire any of those kind of people if he gets back in power. And again, so the, the guardrails will really be off. And unfortunately, the Christian right organizations, the religious right organizations, are all in. You know, they mm-hmm. they are much more interested in seeing society shaped to their will than they are in preserving democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're and in some ways that shouldn't it's shocking, but it's not terribly surprising given how they admire, excessively admire someone like Viktor Orban in Hungary, mm-hmm. who has done that, who has really you know, uh, corrupted uh, all the public institutions and independent media and done away with checks and balances. But they love him because he's used doing all that in service of a, quote, traditional pro-family agenda. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they want. Um, that's what they want to see happen here. Isn't it a similar thing with Putin as well? A lot of Absolutely. American evangelicals admire Putin for the same things. They say, well, he's pro-family and he's he's a, in a sense, he's a Russian, Russian Christian nationalist, isn't he? Quote unquote, he's standing for the Russian Orthodox Church in some way or they're, they're using them to kind of you know create this image of this guy who's standing up for traditional family values. It's it's a bad place to be if you're LGBTQ in Russia, isn't it? What What's your take on that? Because you mentioned earlier Christian nationalism, they have this bent toward authoritarianism supporting it. Why is that? Because one of the things that struck me about it is, you know, is it the case that they, they've been conditioned by years of pastors and preachers who are themselves authoritarian? You come out of a very patriarchal system in a lot of these churches. Is that what's behind it? They're, they've been conditioned to that. So a guy like Trump stands up there. They see him in that same vein. I think that's definitely a piece of it. You know, they particularly the kind of independent mega church model, the Pentecostal church model that's not, you know, tied to the traditional denominations, which have some of their own accountability structures built in. A lot of these, you know, big name pastors basically have nobody holding them accountable and that's how they want it. And, you know, people are quick to throw out the Bible verses about, you know, um, not questioning those in authority or not challenging God's anointed. Yeah. Touch not the Lord's anointed. Yeah. And so that, you know, they... So, yeah, so there's a strong, strong patriarchal bent in the churches itself. And then you tie that to their sort of dominion theology, you know, in the the, the words of Lou Engel, one of these guys is, you know, it's the church's vocation to rule and reign with Christ. So mm. their theology is that Christ is going to come back for the triumphant church when the church has taken its rightful role as the head and not the tail. He will come back and that the church will reign with him and rule. And so that's not going to be a democratic rule. You know, they, mm. it is their their model for the future. And um uh, so they're, you know, they're when they feel like democracy has failed them and democracy has brought about, you know, moral decay or has has um allowed things that they would not allow, like LGBT equality, they'd rather have the results than the democracy. And I think mm-hmm. that's really the big threat. That is a threat. I'm glad you brought up Dominion theology because obviously you and I have talked about this before. What's your view of Dominion theology? Where does it come from? Because we could go back to guys like R.J. Rush Dooney, Christian Reconstructions and things like that. What's the basic overview that you would say as a person who's been researching this for a couple of decades? What is Dominion theology? How would you define it? Yeah, again, that's a big question. But I, I think mm. basically it is the theology that the right kind of Christians, you know, Christians who share a certain interpretation of the Bible, are are divinely appointed to rule, and they are meant to be our rulers 
And the fact that we are in a sad state now is because they are not controlling all of the levers of society. So you mentioned Rushduni, who certainly provided a lot of the theological foundation for this. Um, more recently, Peter Wagner, at the very end of the 20th century, really developed this new apostolic reformation, uh, this Pentecostal uh, theology, which is then now they um, has morphed into the seven mountains mandate, mm -hmm. which is, again, it's the idea that of each of these sectors of influence in society, media, arts and entertainment, government, family, religion, it's a problem for society when Satan is up there instead of someone who you know, shares their biblical worldview. And that's that's the dichotomy. That's part of the other dangers to hear is mm -hmm. too. It's like either you're with them or you're in league with Satan. There's not like, oh, we can disagree on this and that. So they see these strongholds need to be taken. They need to be taken by the right kind of Christians. And then that'll bring about revival and societal transformation. It's interesting because that dominionist crowd, that dominionist theology is global. I mean, oh, they yeah. want that to happen in every society. So they're not as explicitly tied to this American Christian nationalism that, you know, America is is the special anointed land. So, people, you know, there are differences in the movement that way. But in the U.S. political context, they're all allies. They're all um, trying to elect the same people. They're all trying to bend our law and uh, constitution into the same place, even if mm -hmm. they're you know, the theology is not all the same. Some of the guys who use the seven mountains rhetoric as a kind of political lingua franca don't necessarily share the end times theology of the Peter Wagner NAR crowd, but they have found that seven mountains idea as a useful rhetoric for mobilizing conservative Christians to try to mm -hmm. have greater influence and to try to achieve greater political power. After the break, Peter and I are going to be talking more about this issue of the Seven Mountains Mandate. How exactly does that fit into the Christian rights agenda moving forward into 2024? Of course, they're backing Trump. Well, most of them are backing Trump all the way. So it's going to be really fascinating this year to see how things play out, especially in light of all the lawsuits that Donald Trump is facing. Will anything stick to the Teflon Don? Only time will tell. But that aside, welcome to 2024. This is our new year starting out here. Another year of MindShift Podcast. So welcome to the show. If you haven't heard this before, we're going to be getting into a lot of stuff this year. Looking again at the Christian right taking aim at this issue of Dominion Theology. I've got a lot of guests lined up already going forward. The next episode that drops after this one with Peter is a crossover episode. I've done this once or twice before. This is with Rachel Bernstein of the Indoctrination Podcast. We met up in December, had a fantastic conversation. So part one is going to be dropping on her show. And then part two will be here on Mindship Podcast. So that was an unbelievable conversation. We got into a lot of stuff, religious trauma syndrome, cult psychology, my backstory. So you're going to want to head over to the Indoctrination Podcast uh, sometime around the end of January. We'll let you know when that episode drops. But Part two will be here. You want to catch the first one on indoctrination, then come over here. And then I had a conversation as well with Sarah Hayward. I got introduced to her through another good friend of mine, David Morris from Lake Drive Books. He was on the show toward the end of last year, and she's got a book that's just come out called Giving Up God. We had an absolutely wonderful conversation again toward the end of December. So that episode's going to come out after the crossover episode with Rachel Bernstein on the indoctrination podcast. So We've already got a really good couple of episodes in the pipeline. just wanted to mention, too, I've been working with another good friend of mine who, again, was on the show just toward the end of last year, Tim Sledge. He, of course, wrote Goodbye Jesus and some other books that you can find on Amazon. We've been touching base now that we've got a new year past the holidays. He's going to be helping me hopefully launch my book sometime maybe January or February. I will let you know. This is called Baptism, Third Times a Charm, My Story of Deconversion from Christianity. It's almost ready to drop on Kindle. Probably got a little bit more editing to do. And I also want to do an audible version of the book as well. I'm going to be reading chapter one of the book at some point, maybe end of January, early February, something like that. Give you a little bit of a sneak preview of what the book is about. And hopefully you'll go head over to Amazon and buy the book. So I will let you know when that drops. And of course, as always, we're going to be starting up our MindShift podcast Zoom calls. We do these round about the third Sunday of every month. 
I'm working with Catherine Nor. She also was on the show toward the end of last year. I'm hoping to have her back toward the end of January. And then I've got Josh Stewart. He was on the show again. He was the last episode actually that I did in December. He's going to be coming back in February for our MindShift Zoom call. We've already got that date nailed down. So these are wonderful benefits that you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show. If you want to support the show in 2024, you can find the links to the Patreon page in the show notes as always. All right, let's get back into the second half with Peter Montgomery. We're going to look at Mike Johnson, the new GOP Speaker of the House. We're going to be looking at some of these key figures on the Christian right as they're seeking to take dominion into 2024. That's what I'm seeing, too. I think something Dr. Warren Throckmorton mentioned, he said the way he sees it now is that there's roughly speaking two kind of camps. One is the group that says, look, you know, we'll work within political strictures and means right now to get our, our ends achieved. And that might be more the Seven Mountains crowd will we'll go along with it until there's such a time when we will just take over by taking dominion, having enough m- numbers. But then there's this other more maybe hardcore side the Christian Reconstructionist side that says, look, we just need to smash this thing down and you know create a theonomy, create a, a society where the law of the land is the Bible. And that's a lot more on the hardcore side. But what he said is that they're they're working together, which that I hear what that's what you're saying, isn't it? That they're setting aside what used to be when I was an evangelical, those things were irreconcilable theological differences. You know, we used to fall out over end times eschatology, you know. But now they're saying, well, you know. That's not as important. What we need to work together is achieving those goals. How we get there is the is the end game, isn't it? Yeah, and you'll you'll still see you can still go on websites uh, and podcasts from people who are devoted to Christian apologetics. You know, who sort of people who want to debate the theology, and so you will find there people who are very critical of Dominionism or uh, Pentecostalism, but that's. You know, that's kind of in the niche of people who are talking about theology. The people who are talking about politics and building power are all willing to work together. And I think 50, 60 years ago, you, know, you had that similar kind of, I think, difference in this in the United States, where there was a lot more separation, if you will, or tension between Catholics and Protestants. There's a lot mm-hmm. of Protestants who really were sort of vocally anti-Catholic, just based on the theology. And in our political culture, that has pretty much gone away because they found common cause working against abortion and in trying to elect anti-abortion politicians and then working against the movement for marriage equality for same-sex couples. And so that was kind of already an example of evangelicals setting aside theological differences Mm -hmm. to work together politically for a shared political goal when evangelicals and conservative Catholics found it to work together. And so I think in the 21st century, and then particularly in reaction to Barack Obama, the sort of fundamentalist Protestant Baptist crowd was much more willing to suddenly uh, work closely together with the Pentecostal crowd, even though they still have huge theological differences over the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues and Mm -hmm. whether there are current apostles and prophets with the same powers that the original ones did. They still have those theological differences, but they don't they don't worry about them so much, you know, and they, they're they not debating that kind of stuff when they're trying to get Trump reelected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they've set that aside, because I've read some of Rush Dooney's stuff. I mean, he was, for example, a staunch post-millennialist. He believed that the church had to sort of take dominion over the world, at which point, when that finally happened, then Christ would return. And he would say, he would burn down to the ground relationships with people who were pre-millennialists, who were like, you know, pre-millennial rapture and the church is going to be established and then there's going to be a thousand year kingdom and all the rest of it. But like you said, they've, you know, this is where a guy like Doug Wilson, I think has been so effective because he calls himself a Christian reconstructionist or a 2.0. He's very, very cagey. And he said somewhere, I think it was on a podcast that I've basically sanded off the rough, more objectionable edges of a guy like Rush Dooney. And uh, as I saw to make it more palatable for the evangelical masses, He's not controversial in that sense. He's he's got other controversies for sure, but you know that that's where a guy I think like Doug Wilson can be so dangerous because he's so slick about how he's repackaged some of the more extreme stuff that Rush Dooney was pushing. Yeah, and it's one of the things that you know one of the dangers one of the, about what's happened on the right, particularly in the Trump era. I mean, it was certainly happening beforehand. Is this idea of 
uh, you know, we talk about the Overton window being shifted. And so it's the people on the far right really trying to drag the whole movement to the further to the right so that the center mm. of gravity in the conservative movement um, is pulled to the right by um, when people like him are sort of invited onto the same stage and giving credibility with other people. Um, and we see that now in the United States with, you know, we saw someone like Nick Fuentes, who mm-hmm. is just a far fringe, anti-democracy, anti-Semitic, bigot, Christian nationalist, you know, have a Mar-a-Lago. And, um, you know, he's still, he's got elected officials who mm-hmm. come to his conference and, and, and praise him. And he's very explicit that his goal, you know, he says things um, that are so vile because then it, it helps pull everybody else further to the right. You know, he uh, he takes credit for having moved Turning Point USA, dragging them to the right on issues like him, on uh, how they talk about immigration. Mm-hmm. And Turning Point USA is the big youth organizing, youth conservative organizing uh, movement in the United States. They're, that was originally kind of a libertarian-oriented thing, and that has now become totally aligned with the Christian nationalist agenda Mm-hmm. And its founder, Charlie Kirk, has become extremely close to some of the leading Christian nationalists, and they're investing millions of dollars in uh, mobilizing uh, churches and into political activity. Yeah, a lot of concerning stuff out there. We'll look at Clay Clark. Here's another one. The Reawaken America conference tour, whatever it is, it's like an ongoing freak show, isn't it? I've seen the posters. They're like, you know, 200 speakers but you look at who are the some of the main keynote speakers at these reawakening things. You've got Mike Flynn, uh, Mike Lindell, some of the more uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, extreme right wing, some real nut jobs in there. But it's all cloaked in this sort of evangelical Trump MAGA thing, dominionist. You know, there's all this stuff going on in there. I mean, what the hell's going on with Clay Clark? He's another one. Yeah. And that whole that reawakening tour to me, I mean, one of the most fascinating things about it is how that does do this bridging between mm-hmm. the real fringe and then the kind of, you know, uh, right-wing uh, political movement. And so, and there I think Mike Flynn is really the key. I think he is the guy who's able to keep, you know, Trump world insiders involved. They get people like Donald Trump's kids coming and speaking on that stage, mm-hmm. Eric Trump and Laura Trump. And and yet that's the same stage where they have really fringe far-right figures out there calling for violence and execution of political enemies. And somehow they get away with that. And that, you know, the Trump kids don't get called on that. And and the MAGA world leadership doesn't get called on it. And so I think that whole, um, that whole Clay Clark, Mike Flynn, Reawaken America is, is extremely dangerous because you get, they go around the country and you might get someone who's a, Fox News watcher or a Trump fan comes to that event because they're going to see Mike Lindell and mm-hmm. he's their hero because he's trying to save the America from yeah. the rigged elections. So they come to see Mike Lindell, but then they sit there for two days and they get, you know, just um, yeah, freak shows, yeah, conspiracy theories, the nationalism and the QAnon, everything. It's all in there. Right, conspiracy theories and calls for violence. And so it really, I think, is a radicalizing movement. And that's, you know, they're they're still going around the country. They'll certainly be going around the country between now and the 2024 election. You know, because people really picked up on how much Trump's followers loved his rallies. And so I think this is kind of using that same model, right? You mm-hmm. get the stars of the movement, they show up, they go. And it's a cultural thing for people to turn out to these. And so others are picking up on that. You know, Lance Wallnow, who's the biggest promoter of Seven Mountains Dominionism, is doing a tour in 2024 into the, um, or he said he is, into the 17 counties where uh, they think the presidential election will be decided. Sort of in swing states, the important counties, the swing counties. And he's going to take his tour, his Christian nationalist tour to those counties to try to maximize conservative evangelical turnout. Yeah, so there's really concerning stuff going on. Well, speaking of Seven Mountains, okay, this brings us now to Mike Johnson. We kind of alluded to that earlier. One thing that struck me about Johnson is that he's an insider. He's nobody knew who he was. You know, it's like until he became the House uh, Speaker, 
of the GOP party. It's like, who is this guy? And then all these articles started coming out. And I started researching. I'm sure you've gone into it. One of the concerning things is that he's got a connection with a guy named Jim Garlow, who's another big New Apostolic Reformation, major Seven Mountains mandate guy. Dutch Sheets, who's another one. Sounds like they don't have a relationship, but Sheets endorsed Mike Johnson. Basically said, you know, I don't know the guy, but man, he sounds exactly like the person we need in that position. You know, so there's a lot of concern. And the more stuff that's come out about Mike Johnson is to me, the, the hackles are going up again. The red flags are waving. What's your take on Mike Johnson now that he's been in office for a few months? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's hugely concerning. You're right. He, he kind of came out of nowhere and uh, he is, he has talked, he has said that people like David Barton and Jim Garlow have had a huge influence on him and how mm -hmm. he looks at the world and how he approaches politics. So that alone is, you know, extremely yeah. concerning yeah, I've alarm bells reporting. should be going off <laughs> by that point. Yes, and I'm seeing some reporting that through the local church he attends, he's connected to other New Apostolic Reformation figures. Um, the recent event that took place uh, just this month, December 5th, in um, Washington, D.C., at the Museum of the Bible, was a gathering of a, a relatively newish group over the last couple of years, the National Association of Christian Lawmakers. And that's a network of state-level elected officials who they've sort of adopted the, the model of a group we have here called the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is kind of a big matchmaker between corporate lobbyists and Republican state legislators. And they prepare model legislation on deregulation and a million other things. And so they meet and they get these model bills and they go home and get them introduced in the states. And so this is an effort to sort of do the same for the Christian nationalist agenda to have a network of state lawmakers. Anyway, Mike Johnson was gave the keynote address at their gala at the Museum of the Bible. I signed up to go to the conference and uh, had my uh, registration fee returned as I was persona non grata. And then they closed it to the media because Mike Johnson wanted to give a message only to the friendly audience. He didn't want the American public to see what he was saying. Uh, unfortunately for them, the uh, head of the Association of Christian Lawmakers streamed it live on his Facebook page anyway. And one of my colleagues captured it and we were able to, in a report on Mike Johnson, just, you know, very calmly explained to people how God had been talking to him for the, you know, during the leadership fights in the house and that God had been, you know, preparing him to be Moses that was going to mm -hmm. lead America through this Red Sea moment. And, it's interesting to me because um, the last time I remember hearing some of the Dominions talking about the Red Sea moment in the country was after the 2020 election and before the insurrection, when they were having all these, uh, Jim Garlow was sponsoring all these prayer calls with you know people like Michelle Bachman and Lance Wallow and others mm -hmm. and Mike Flynn coming on. And they were there talking about the Red Sea moment there was trying to keep Trump in power. So I think all of that is... Uh, extremely concerning about Johnson, who he says are his influences, how he talks about uh, his stance and everything being based on his biblical worldview, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is a whole thing, the way the right talks about biblical worldview and what they mean by it. So I think we're really going to have to have to keep a close eye on him and his allies. And, you know, they they're just thrilled by him getting elected, you know, the, the Christian nationalists. Uh, when he showed up and there's like, ah, one, it's one of ours. It's one of our guys. It's God's guy. You know, mm -hmm. they, the way they talked about Trump, they, they talk about Mike Johnson. We have to think about the fact that if Trump does come back in power and someone like Mike Johnson is still the speaker, there's an end to any idea that, that Congress will hold Trump accountable for anything he does. Mm -hmm. Any of the law breaking or constitution breaking he's going to do, you know, Mike Johnson has said he's all in for Trump. And I think, um, you know, given his ties to the the Christian nationalist movement that is all in for Trump, um, you know, that's going to be a big problem. It is. And they've, as you say, they interpret it as God has absolutely placed Mike Johnson in this position waiting for Trump. Now, that's a great segue because I wanted to play that clip. This is from the Right Wing Watch website. Or it's on YouTube, actually, the Right Wing Watch channel. The exact speech that you just mentioned 
Mike Johnson at this Christian lawmaker. It's only a couple of minutes long, but I'm interested to hear what your reactions are. You've kind of alluded to it already, but let's hear it. The media is not here. Thank you for not allowing the media in. I'll tell you a secret um, because they wanted to come because they wanted to, um, you know, pick my uh, comments out of context as they've been doing uh, with to, with great uh, joy for the last few weeks. Um, uh, the, the Lord impressed upon my heart a, a few weeks before this happened that something something was going to occur. And the Lord very specifically told me in my prayers um, to, to prepare, uh, but to wait. Prepare for what? I said to the Lord, you know. Um, I had this sense that we were going to come to a Red Sea moment uh, in our Republican conference and, and the country at large. And um, look, I'm a Southern Baptist. I don't want to get too spooky on you, okay? But, you know, you know, okay? All right? But, you know, the Lord speaks to your heart. And, and he had been speaking to me uh, about this, and, and the Lord told me very clearly to prepare and be ready. Be ready for what? Okay, I don't know. We're coming to a Red Sea moment. What does that mean, Lord? Um, and then when the speaker's race happened and, and, and Kevin McCarthy, who's a dear friend of mine, was deposed, uh, vacated from the chair, oh, wow, well, this is what uh, the Lord may have been preparing us for. And so um, I, I was started praying more about that, and then the Lord began to wake me up uh, through this three-week process we're in in the middle of the night and and to speak to me and to write things down plans and and procedures and ideas on how we could pull the conference together now at the time i assumed the lord is going to choose a new moses and oh thank you the lord lord you're going to allow me to be aaron to moses and so i i, I worked to get steve scalise uh, elected speaker that didn't happen and then jim jordan who's like another big brother of mine no that didn't happen and then tom emmer and you know ultimately 13 people ran for the for the post um, and, and the Lord kept telling me to wait, wait, wait. So I waited, I waited. And then at the end, when it came to the end, the Lord said, now, step forward. Me? I, I'm, I'm supposed to be Aaron. No, the Lord said, step forward. Psalm 77 speaks of the Exodus in, in the 14th chapter of Exodus. And it says, only God saw the path through the roiling sea. We could not see it. Men could not see it. And I, and I, I believe deep in my heart my, is my core conviction that God wants us to seek him for the path through the roiling sea. Well, there you have it. Mike Johnson, I've got a lot of thoughts on that. What do you think, Peter, just watching that clip, I'm sure you've seen it thousands of times, but what's your impression on Mike Johnson's speech there? Well, it's it's a interesting thing about him, I think, is that he is he speaks very calmly. He speaks mm -hmm. reasonably. You know, he has what the religious right talks about being winsome. I think he's winsome in the sense that he... If you listen to him, he doesn't come across as a, someone who's like screaming about damnation or anything. So that I think makes him potentially more dangerous because not his, ranting. his extremism gets kind of covered over by his um, surface civility and his niceness. But you know, I think one of the dangers of the whole the rhetoric of the Christian right and you know deciding that that someone like Trump is anointed by God is that then if you're his opponent, then you're also an opponent of God. You're not just wrong, but you're evil and you're on the side of Satan. And so it's a little disturbing that that Mike Johnson believes that now he is in position. He's the second line to the presidency, you know, with this specific mandate from God. You know, we'll have to we'll have to see how his how it plays out in his tenure and how he uses his leadership. But it's certainly striking, you know, to to know that he believes that um you know, the nation is in a Red Sea moment and that God has, has lifted him up as a Moses. And yeah. Yeah. To lead I'm us through. Yeah. On that too. There's a lot of stuff in there because there's a couple of things that strike me about the, the clip. One is that, like you said, he admits he's a Southern Baptist. He's not an NAR. He's not a new apostolic reformation guy, but yet, as we know, you said he's got connections with people like Jim Garlow and others who are absolutely in the NAR seven mountains camp. So he's, he's portraying himself, hey, you know, don't get me wrong here. I, you know, I'm not trying to be some kind of crazed charismatic, but then he'll turn around and say, essentially, I, I heard from God audibly in whatever way to write these things down. And then he comes across, he's so humble, the humility, you know, I was just going to be the Aaron. Aaron was Moses's brother and he was the second in command. He was the behind the scenes figure not me, Lord, you know, oh, what, I'm shocked. I'm the Moses? What are you talking about? Oh, wow. You know, and in the narrative, in, in the book of Exodus, you've got Pharaoh's army at their backs, and they're up against the Red Sea, and there's no way out, and they're going to all be destroyed. So there's that image that America's in such peril, and now Mike Johnson's been selected 
to lead us through this roiling sea of whatever it is, you know, so there's a lot of stuff going on in that clip that makes me <laughs> as an ex-evangelical go, wow, uh, yeah, I'm, so, I'm a little bit nervous. So, you know, in that analogy, who are Pharaoh's armies? Mm -hmm. Where is he going to lead America to? What is the promised land? Exactly. What is his vision of the promised land, right? You have to push it to its logical conclusion. Yeah. Every every metaphor, every analogy breaks down at some point, doesn't it? So who, yeah, yeah like you say, who are who is the army at our back? What what's going to happen after they get out of the Red Sea? Who's going to be? Because in the in the narrative, of course, Pharaoh's armies drowned when they pursued the Israelites through the sea that was you know split in half, and they all drowned. So they were destroyed. You know. So what does that mean? How far do you want to take this biblical narrative? Well, and and that makes me recall that. On the morning of January 6, 2021, the first person who spoke at Trump's rally was Paula White, mm. giving the prayer in which she prayed for holy boldness, but also prayed for God to destroy uh, his enemies. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, so you hear that rhetoric. Well, and a couple other things I picked up about Mike Johnson was that, you know, when he was elected as the, the speaker, they said, "Oh, you know, you're not, you're not some sort of extremist." Oh, no, no, no. What do you think about gay rights? And, oh, no, I'm. You know, well, that's what the law of the land says. I have every. I have no problem with that. But yet, look at his backstory. He used to work as a lawyer for the what was then the Alliance Defense Fund, which now is the Alliance Defending Freedom, the biggest Christian right legal you know powerhouse in America, and they are absolutely a hundred. And we know he was he was he was you know, on the record. Uh, going up against these quote-unquote homosexual agenda. So we know Mike Johnson has a long track record of that. These are concerning things, aren't they? He is a lot more extreme than than what he comes across to be. Yeah, and, you know, he's, I think, he's not a dumb guy. And they know politically you know, that the Christian right got, a, got what they've been fighting for for 50 years and got the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade and give states the power to ban abortion. And a lot of them did. And in a lot of ways, that's blowing up in Republicans' faces because Americans don't want abortion to be criminalized. You know, uh, Americans don't want that to happen. So mm -hmm. now they're trying to figure out ways to to achieve what they want without getting hurt politically by it. Um, and I think that's why you have him. He also knows that the American public, by huge margins now, supports LGBT equality, including marriage equality. Um, you know, at least two thirds of the public. So he's you know, says, oh, that's not an issue. The Supreme Court decided, I believe it's settled law. I don't believe that for a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, the, you know, the conservative justices, when they're having their confirmation hearings, they could say, well, Roe v. Wade is settled law. Well, it's settled because that's the decision that's currently in place. All it takes is, you know, five justices to make it not settled law. Mm -hmm. And groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom have a very explicit agenda to reverse that Supreme Court decision. And, you know, the uh, ADF is huge and has a massive budget, and they think in big terms. And the way they describe it is that they have a strategic approach to achieving generational wins, is what they call it. And overturning Roe v. Wade was one of their generational win goals, oh, yeah. and they've done that. It was a big and one. now uh, returning, making marriage law in alignment with their mm -hmm. uh, religious beliefs about what marriage is is one of their other generational win goals so yeah the idea that he's trying to poo-poo the fact that house republicans aren't going to make a priority of banning abortion or aren't going to go after equality for lgbtq people that may be true in the very short-term sense and that he's reading the political tea leaves and doesn't want to give democrats uh, a leg up in 2024, but in terms of where he wants to take the country, he's being, you know, disingenuous at best. Yeah, and there's another name when you mentioned ADF is Michael Ferris, because I think he's now the current head of the Alliance Defending Freedom. Is he now? I've done a lot of stuff on Michael Ferris because here's a guy that's one of the pillars of the Christian homeschooling movement. He founded the Homeschool Legal Defense Association as well as Patrick Henry College in Virginia. This is a guy whose stated aim is sort of this thing of raising up generations of Christian children, and they're going to take over. They're going to take dominion. Patrick Henry College, as I see it, was planted near the Capitol so that that would funnel 
interns into the political process, which they've done. They had a lot of interns that were Patrick Henry graduates or, or students that worked during the Trump administration, didn't they? So, and you had a guy like Madison Cawthorn. He didn't finish at Patrick Henry, but he did attend there. And he was a, he's a homeschool kid and he made it into politics, you know? So that's the blueprint, isn't it? So there's another angle to this whole thing with a guy like Mike Ferris, isn't it? Yeah. And Mike Ferris is one of those big picture long-term thinkers. And, mm -hmm. and he's also involved in this movement called, um, you know, for an article five convention, which is using a, different constitutional, a different mechanism that's written in the Constitution for rewriting the Constitution and proposing, and that comes through the state legislatures. So there's a, a Mike Ferris is helping push that as a way of trying to uh, rewrite the U.S. Constitution, which is is very disturbing. But he's actually recently handed off leadership at ADF to Kristen Wagoner, who's been one of the lead attorneys there for a long time. Here, having her name come up reminds me of another really significant thing that we haven't talked about yet that I think has just generally gotten a lot less attention than it deserves. And that's that there is a, a different coalition. I mentioned the Project 2025 coalition on the right that is aimed at setting the stage for um, purging the civil service and imposing Trump's will on the federal government. There's another collaborative project that's being um, headed up by the American Family Association, another one of the large Christian right groups, and one of the their projects called the Center for Judicial Renewal. And they have, again, this is where it's like the Christian nationalism is getting more brazen and more aggressive. They have declared that they are going to make sure that any future Republican president only nominates Supreme Court justices who meet their religious test. And they're just, they're, they're making it very explicit. They said, you know, the most important thing about a Supreme Court justice is their biblical worldview. And so they're looking at every conservative judge whose name has been floated anywhere as a possible future Supreme Court justice. And they're putting together these giant dossiers on them, including things like, you know, where they went to the church, what their wife says on social media. And they're writing up these dossiers, evaluating their biblical worldview. And they've got a website where there's a, a few conservative judges who've been named as potential, who they like, these are unacceptable. He's not met mm. their religious worldview. And, you know, I, I've been watching these folks for 20 years. I should not be able to be surprised by anything. <laughs> yeah, so you I, think. I learned about this. They, they kind of launched this public talking about it at Pray Vote Stand, which is a big religious right conference in September. And I was stunned at just how, how uh, plain spoken it was, that that's what they were doing, that they were, and that they're, you know, that they're lobbying the uh, Republican presidential candidates. They're already in communication with their campaign saying, uh, we think these judges don't have a sufficient biblical worldview, so don't even think about nominating them. Anyway, one of the people who is there on their green list, one of the people they, on their wish list is Kristen Wagner, the head of ADF, who they would like to see on the Supreme Court. So wow. that is a whole new level of scary. Red flags everywhere. Because it seems to me, I don't know if, what you think about this, but when Trump was president, as I understand, I mean, he stacked the court. It wasn't just a Supreme Court. It was all sorts of levels down, too, wasn't it? With judges that had already been vetted by, I think, uh, organizations like the Heritage Foundation and others. And as far as I understood it, this might be oversimplifying it, but they just handed him a list of names and said, these are the judges we want. And he was like, yeah, who cares? Whatever. It's just a campaign promise. I don't, re I don't even know these people. I don't care. Whatever. And then that was kind of the way it went down. It wasn't even on the Supreme Court those three justices were absolutely vetted and they were put forward and they won. And now look at the mess we're in. Yeah, you're right. The The Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, you know, really um, uh, put together the list that he released when he was running for president saying, I'll pick my Supreme Court justices, somebody on this list. Uh, Leonard Leo, who was running the Federalist Society's judicial takeover for decades, you know, basically picked Trump's judges for him. And you're right. They filled um, the federal courts with all kinds of bad judges who are doing harmful things right now, not only are they doing harmful things, but they serve the purpose of of helping elevate issues to the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, they're funneling so, it up, up, they're kicking it up the ladder, basically. So they've got, right, so they've got conservative judges who, so for example, if your goal is to reverse marriage equality, you go to one of these places now that has some far-right Trump judge, you bring some kind of challenge, you know, they rule in a way, and it's a, it's a way of creating an avenue to appeal something up to the Supreme Court to give the Supreme mm -hmm. Court a chance to overturn that ruling. 
And that was the explicit strategy that ADF had on Roe. They wrote the Mississippi law, then they represented Mississippi uh, in defending the law and in, in challenging it um, all the way to the Supreme Court. So that's how ADF works. And you know the idea that uh, uh, one of them would be, that the head of the ADF would be on a short list for the Supreme Court is pretty stunning. The other, the other piece of that is, we haven't talked about it very much, but you know, a whole piece of the Christian right that's different from the Pentecostal dominionists and the fundamentalists is the far right Catholic crowd. Mm -hmm. And they're the Opus, absolutely Opus Dei crowd. part of the Christian part of the um part of this network. And Leonard Leo is part of that right wing Catholic network. And um you have you know some academics like Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame who are, you know, basically uh, have become impatient with uh, liberal democracy. And, you know, people, the Catholic world, integralists is sort of the Catholic version, maybe of Christian Reconstructionism. So there's there's a whole other wing of the um, Christian right in the United States that, that, again, has some different theology, but has a lot of the same political goals. And one of the really striking things that happened in the last year or so in the United States is that an industrialist, gave Leonard Leo basically his company before he was dying or when he was retiring or something, he basically gifted Leonard Leo with $1.6 billion to funnel through his network of nonprofits and shell companies. Mm. And and so now Leo has this massive amount of money that he is going to try to do to American society as a, as a whole, what he did to the courts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that'll be supporting a uh, different version of sort of dominionism, but of, of again, bringing society into alignment with that um, theological and political worldview. It seems like, yeah, the Catholic side of it, I know some of that's the Opus Dei piece. I haven't done a lot of research on Opus Dei, but from what I've heard, it's it strikes me that a lot of it is similar to the Christian right dominionist angle, isn't it? Guys like William Barr, he had connections to Opus Dei, even though he sort of denied it when he was the attorney general. But we know he had connections to Opus Dei and other kind of these far-right Catholic dominionist networks. This is the thing. I know we got to wrap it up, but my question is, at what point does this start to feel like we're talking about a conspiracy theory? Because I was on a podcast last night as we're doing this recording now, and I was explaining to the host what kind of what you did. I went through the whole thing. What's dominion theology, Christian nationalism, and what the Christian right's doing? And it struck me as I was talking, I'm thinking, my God, this starts to sound like I'm promoting a QAnon thing like this is a massive conspiracy theory what can we do though you know because a lot of times i think we feel powerless we're just watching these things happen and we we kind of slept walked into roe versus way being overturned feeling like what the hell can we do i mean uh, from your point of view is there anything the sort of average citizen can actually do to fight against this stuff yeah i think i think one thing um and i agree you're right sometimes when you look at the amount of money they have and the victories they've chalked up you know, it can be easy to, to fall into despair. But I think one one way to to not let that happen is to remind ourselves that partly they're becoming so aggressive because they're losing. Mm. And they're trying to, you know, maintain power by illegitimate means because they've lost the hearts and minds of the public on a lot of these things. The public does not want a complete ban on abortions. The public does not want to reverse a century of progress on feminism and LGBTQ equality. And so just be reminded that um, they are a minority point of view. It's vocal and they have power because they vote at a higher percentage than other people. Mm -hmm. So the key is for the folks who do not share their worldview to become as uh, equally as fervent and intense about voting and being politically engaged. You know, the, the white evangelical slice of the American population has been steadily diminishing. But their percentage of the electorate has not been because mm -hmm. they're so organized and they turn out at higher numbers than other groups. And so they have a bigger impact politically than than the size uh, than their size in the population. And right. so they're punching um, above their weight in some ways. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the fact that Trump was defeated in his reelection is a model. I mean, Trump lost because people who didn't share that worldview mobilized and organized and you know worked in really really hard to turn out enough voters to deny him another term in the white house and, mm -hmm. and so that's um it's a both a sign of progress that that their victory is not uh, assured 
and uh, a reminder that it takes a lot of work because they are they have the passion that comes with believing that God has anointed them and given them this mission to turn America back into the way they say it into a certain kind of Christian nation, and that that's a powerful motivating force. So we have to be powerfully motivated um, in defense of democracy and mm-hmm. democratic values. It can be done. Or maybe, Peter, maybe Trump did win. And think about that. <laughs> all those prophets like Dutch Sheets and so all these other guys were right. You know, that was the, I know we've talked about this before in the, in the run-ups and then the follow-up afterwards of the 2020 election. All these, you know, apostles and prophets that had so confidently predicted a Trump landslide. And then their defense was, no, we were right. We didn't get it wrong. Trump did win, but it was stolen. And so they've slid right into the stolen election narrative for the last couple of years. These people are still promoting that same line, aren't they? So yeah, it's not gone away, has it? Well, listen, I know we could keep talking. This is like mind bending. It's so there's been so much information, but if people wanted to find you on social media and find your work, if they want to get more into your research, where can they find you? What's the best place to look? Yeah, our website is uh, rightwingwatch.org, and we're um, on Facebook and on X slash Twitter still at mm-hmm. uh, at Right Wing Watch, and I'm uh, at Pete Mont, P-E-T-E-M-O-N-T. And we now know that the foolishness when I remember that a couple was a couple of years ago when YouTube dropped your ch- your channel, they there was some nonsense about it. it was the craziest thing because they said you're promoting right wing extremist views, <laughs> and Right Wing Watch is like um. No, we're playing <laughs> clips in context. These people are the ones right. that are, you know, so it was a strange thing, but they they were able to get the channel back up and running eventually, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, that didn't, fortunately, uh, we had a lot of reporters and others come out and say, hey, this is valuable information. So um, yeah, that's that YouTube channel is not the place to go. Yeah, it's true. That's a good channel. And thank you to the Right Wing Watch again for that clip of Mike Johnson. If you guys hadn't promoted that, we wouldn't have known. We wouldn't have had that. Of course, he made the mistake the guy did of putting it on Facebook Live, which was a huge mistake. But thankfully, we profited from that. We know a little bit more about Mike Johnson's agenda. So thank you so much, Peter. Let's not make it two years. We, we'll get together again. We'll touch base again. But thank yeah, you we'll for sharing all your information. About, yeah, we'll, we'll have a lot to talk about now in November. Oh, definitely. Yeah, let's touch base again. I'll pick your brains and we'll see what the Christian writes up to. Great. Thank you very much for having me.